scripture passage, but today we're going to do that. If you have your Bible or your tablet or your phone or however you read the Bible, if you would turn to the book of Matthew, that would be the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 14, Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 14. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah? supposed to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Ju Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when, you come, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. That was a lie. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own company, country by another route. For God had warned them. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. <clears throat> the, the story of the wise men looking for Jesus is one we typically only hear read or preached about around Christmas time. But since it's only 174 days until Christmas... And the message that's found in this passage is one that is timeless. I want to take some time this July 4th to look at the thought of wise men still seek him, even in July. Wise men still seek him, even in July. Every year around Christmas time, we see church signs that echo the title of this sermon, at least part of it, wise men still seek him. And while that is true, the larger truth is we don't seek him until he first seeks us. And then when we respond to him seeking us, that is what makes us wise. And that's really what these men in our text that we just read, it's what they did. God gave them a light. In this case, it was a star. And they followed it until they finally came face to face with Jesus. And then when they finally met him, their lives were changed forever. In the scripture text, we see some characteristics that identify truly wise people. And I will add that those 
who are truly wise today will share these same qualities that characterize the wise men who came to worship Jesus in Bethlehem. The translation that we're reading from today, I read from the New Living Translation, it calls these men wise men. Other translations call them magi. Wise men or magi were men who were skilled in philosophy. They were skilled in medicine, religions, and natural science. They were often also soothsayers and interpreters of dreams. They were also greatly interested in astrology, which would explain some of their interest in this star that led them to Jesus. We do not know for sure where these men came from. We're simply told they came from eastern lands or from the east. Many Bible scholars believe that they came from the area around ancient Babylon. And if that was the case, which it very likely is, it would mean these men would have had access to ancient Jewish scriptures. And follow me here because there's a reason I say that. Remember, the Jews had been taken to Babylon hundreds of years ago. Prior to this time, they were taken as slaves and lived in exile in Babylon for many decades. While they were there, there were several of these Jewish exiles who rose to prominence in the kingdom of Babylon. Among them were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know about them. And of course, Daniel, who we've, we've looked at several times in recent sermons. Daniel wrote a lot about the coming of the Lord while he was living in Babylon. The prophet Ezekiel penned his book while he was living there. And as a result of access to these writings and other historical writings, these wise men would have known of the prophecy of Numbers 24, 17 that says, speaking of Jesus, a star will come out of Bethlehem, a scepter will rise out of Israel. See how this is all fitting together? Based on that, it would be safe to say that these men's were, men were not just on an astrological quest, but also on a spiritual journey. In fact, without a doubt, I have to believe that they were moved to go to Bethlehem by the Spirit of God. I believe the Spirit of God impressed on their hearts the truth of what they read in those Jewish scripture. And as a result, they were led to go find the baby Jesus. In this case, when they got there, he was not a baby anymore. He was actually a child. And just as a side note, the Bible does not say how many wise men there were. It does not tell us their names. There could have been three, and there could have been 15. Most people automatically assume there were three because there's three gifts mentioned, but there could have been 15 guys that took three gifts. But that's neither here nor there. The number of wise men and their names really doesn't matter. What did matter is what they did when they arrived in Bethlehem. They approached Jesus, and they worshiped him. These men had traveled many, many miles to find this small child. For probably close to two years, these wise men had traveled through deserts. They had crossed mountains and rivers. They had endured hardships. They had endured each other. They had faced bandits, all for the sake of coming to Jesus because they felt what they would find would be worth all the trials and hardships. And you know what? They were right. Even today, over 2,000 years later, wise men still come to Jesus. But when a person knows the consequence of unbelief and does nothing about it, then that person is not living a life that's based on wisdom. 
The writer of Psalm 14.1 is a little bit more direct from the way he said it. He said, only fools say in their heart, there is no God. So we see that it is wise men and women who come to Jesus, but it is fools who do not. The choice is ours. And I can tell you, and there are many others here today who can tell you the same thing, the wisest moment of their life was the moment when they came to Jesus Christ by faith. Now, let's be clear, when that happens, we can't take any credit for it. Because Ephesians 2.1 tells, tells us that before we came to Christ, we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. But then it goes on to say that it is by grace we are saved. So we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, but it is by grace that we are saved. I believe it's the next scripture. Before we came to Christ, we were lost in our sins, separated from God. But he came to us, opened our eyes, showed us our condition, and pointed us to Calvary. And all we had to do at that point was to lift up our eyes in faith to Jesus Christ, who died on a cross and rose again from the dead to redeem us. And it was at that very moment our chains fell off and we we're set free. One of the greatest days in anyone's life is the day the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and allows us to see our condition before God. It allows us to see that we are sinners in need of a Savior. It might hurt a bit to see ourselves as we really are, but it is the first step and it is an essential step towards salvation. We can't do it on our own. As we said earlier, we didn't seek him until he first sought us. Jesus said in John 6, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we only come to him because we have been drawn to him. When our eyes are opened to the fact that without Christ we are all sinners, when our eyes are opened to what Jesus did on the cross for each one of us, when we are drawn to God and we respond by seeking and calling on him, it is then that we will experience his saving power. If you have been waiting to come to Jesus for salvation, I would ask you today, please don't wait any longer. Come to him today. He will save everyone who will call on him. But if we choose to go our own way, we will not be saved. And whether you respond or not, the greatest truth you'll ever hear in your life is that Jesus died for your sins on the cross that if you will come to him, he will save your soul. But again, even though that's the greatest thing we'll ever hear, salvation and living for God is a choice that we all have to make. And we have to make that on our own. Even though John 3.16 says 
that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10, 19, and then verse 13 says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. During one of the many times that Paul and Silas found themselves in prison, they were chained. And during this time, an earthquake took place. And in the midst of that earthquake, their chains fell off, the prison doors flew open, and the jailer was terrified. He knew that if the prisoners got away, that he would be killed. So he was terrified. Knowing who they were, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas, and asked them this. He said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul answered them in verse 31. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then in John 6, 47, again, we read the words of Jesus. It says, Verily, truly, I say unto you, the one who believes has eternal life. I say that to say this. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can be saved if you choose to come to Jesus Christ. You can be saved if you choose to seek him. We know these wise men sought Jesus, but we should also recognize that there was a purpose to their seeking. In verse 2 of our scripture text, the wise men tell King Herod that their desire is to find this young king and worship him. And then when they do finally find him, in verse 11, we read that they fell down before him and they worshiped at his feet. So they sought to worship him, and then when they found him, they did exactly that. Isn't it amazing that even among these heathen astrologers, they had enough insight to recognize the glory of the one whom they had found? And yet here we are over 2,000 years later, with all the light that we have been given, with all the resources that we have been given, and many in our day seem incapable of seeing who he really is, and as a result, they refuse to worship him. In our society, the wisest among us are not the scholars. They are not the scientists. They're not even the religious elite. The wisest people today are those people, both young and old, who are willing to forsake everything else, the things of the world, the things of their past, and simply fall down at Jesus' feet and adore him. One of the most sacred and greatest duties we can perform to the Lord is simply to give him our sincere worship and our praise. I assure you, if you say, well, I just don't know what I have to praise him for. I assure you this, if you'll stop and take a brief inventory, you will find more than enough reasons to worship at his feet. Think about what he's done in your life. Think about what he is doing in your life. Think about what he has promised to do in your life. When all these things are taken together, it's easy to see that we have a lot to praise him for. We have a lot to worship him for. Psalm 126.3 says, The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. I need a new battery, please. Jesus Christ is worthy 
of our praise and our worship. He deserves all the love that we can show him. He deserves all the devotion we can give him. He deserves all the praise that we can render unto him. He is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Wise people know that they owe everything they have and everything they are to Jesus Christ. And as a result, they're not afraid to worship him. So when we come to church, when we come into the presence of God, do we worship the Lord? Do we think to what we have to worship? And not just that, do we worship him because of who he is? When these men came before Jesus, they also came with gifts in their hands. And these gifts were rather significant. Much better. So they came with gifts, and the gifts were significant. We know from Christmas pageants past, the gifts were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But do we know the significance behind the gifts? Let's take a look. The gold shows that they recognized Jesus as a king. In some cultures, no one could approach a king without a gift. So these wise men... Knowing, knowing that he was a king, they brought him gold. And again, that's because the gift acknowledged that he was a king. We too should always bow in submission to our Lord, and we must also acknowledge that he is the king of kings and lord of lords, because that's what wise men do. If we look more closely at their gift of gold, we see that it even had greater meaning. It was a prophetic gift in that it spoke of Jesus ruling and reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. It was also a preordained gift. It was part of God's bigger plan because while this gold served as a show of honor, it also showed a very specific and practical purpose. And here's why I say this. It was because of this gold that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were able to cover the cost of their journey into Egypt and back when they fled for their lives from Herod. Traveling wasn't free. Somebody had to finance it. Guess who helped pay for it? The wise men, because they brought gold. God knew the need even before Mary and Joseph knew they had a need. And he provided for the need through the gift of these wise men. So their gift had a specific purpose. In addition to the gift of gold, there was a gift of frankincense. And frankincense had a specific, a very special meaning because it was a priestly gift. It was used for worship and during worship at the temple when sacrifices were offered to God. Frankincense was a, a gummy substance that came from certain species of trees. And when it poured out, it released a sweet-smelling fragrance. 
In the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus is our high priest. And as our high priest, he didn't come to earth to offer up sacrifices of, of the blood of goats and lambs in the temple. But instead, he offered a sacrifice of his own blood on a cross. A sacrifice that provided redemption of sin once and for all. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As our high priest, his sacrifice allows us entrance into the presence of God through mercy and grace. <clears throat> the third gift was myrrh. Myrrh is a substance that was used to embalm dead bodies. And as such, it serves as a reminder of why Jesus came into the world, to die in our place for sin. Although he is our king, although he was our high priest, he came here to die. Not just to die, but to die for our sins. 1 John 2.2 tells us that Jesus was the sacrifice that atones or makes amends for our sins. Not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus came to earth to satisfy the holy demands of a just and righteous God in regard to sin. And he was the perfect sacrifice. He was the spotless lamb. 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. His sacrifice was inclusive. It was important. And it was also indicative of God's love for us, even as sinners. There's a story told about a fire in Liverpool, England. The house that caught fire was called the Sailor's Home. It was a place that sailors would often stay. As the fire burned, people began to assemble, and they, they noticed in the upper stories there were men who were crying out for help. Someone rushed to get a ladder. But when it was raised it was found to be too short. But a sailor in the crowd rushed up the ladder and he balanced himself on the uppermost round of the ladder and he seized the window in the top story with his hands and he shouted, quick, men, scramble over my body and down the ladder. And then one by one, these men came down until they were all saved. Finally, that sailor came down, his face burned his hair singed, his fingers blistered, but he had saved the men. Now watch this. The ladder that was raised by the onlookers had gone a long way, but it wasn't enough. Before these men could be saved, it needed the length of a man. There was a need for someone to stand in the gap between what that ladder would do and where it needed to be. 
And that's what Jesus did when he came to this earth. He spanned the gap between God and men. He was born to die, and he died that we might live. Since the dawn of time, men have tried to reach God on their own and through their own efforts. They've tried to do it through religion, by performing good deeds. And just as it was with the ladder at the sailor's home, their efforts have always fallen short. Mankind needed someone who could span the gap. And that is what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Now let me add this before we move on. Yes, we are saved by grace. And while good works and godly living, living a Christ-like life, on its own will not save us. If we are truly saved, we will have good works. And if we are truly saved, we will live a godly, Christ-like life. But today I don't have gold. I don't have frankincense or myrrh to give to the king. So I have to give him what I do possess. I can give him my love, my worship, my attention, my time, my finances, my praise, my glory, and my labor. I can give him all that I have and all that I am and place it on the altar of sacrifice to his glory. Paul said it like this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He said, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. In other words, when you look at what God has done for us, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This beautiful story that we read about these wise men teaches us what real worship involves. Real worship always involves giving. The wise men gave to Jesus in three very important ways. First of all, they gave of themselves. They bowed down and they worshiped him. Secondly, they gave sacrificially. They opened their treasure chests. You ever pay attention to that? They opened their treasure chest. They opened what they had and considered a treasure. They gave of something that mattered. And thirdly, they gave simply and without fanfare. They gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You see, it always cost us something to worship Jesus. That's why sometimes we refer to it as a sacrifice of praise, because it costs us something. He expects our worship to be simple and straightforward. He expects our worship to involve sacrifice as we give back to him from the things that he's given to us. I can raise my hands, and because I can, I will. He expects our worship to involve self as we bow before him and give him public adoration, praise, worship for who he is to us and for all that he has done for us.
It's only 174 days till Christmas. But I will tell you, we cannot wait until Christmas to give him our gifts of praise and worship. And I say that because without a doubt, I can say today that God is good. And all the time. And that's why we can't wait till Christmas. After these wise men had given their gifts, God warned them in a dream that they were also in danger and they were, they were going to have to return to their homeland by a different route. They heeded the message of the Lord and went a different way. And because they chose to do that and they listened to the Lord, they survived the rage of Herod the king. May I remind you that wise men still turn their ears toward heaven. God has promised us in his word that he will lead us and guide us until we reach our heavenly home. Our duty then is to listen for his voice. And then when we hear him speak, to be obedient in what he says. There are many folks who run all over creation looking for answers to life's questions. When all the while... We hold those answers right there in our hands in the form of the Bible. God has given us his perfect revelation. Our, our job then is to read it and to study it. That's our job. To read the word and study the word. And I'll add this, a good time to study the Bible is at Bible study on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. And not only to read it and study it, but to follow what it says. It's not enough just to read it. It's not even enough just to understand it. If you walk into a place that has flammable liquids and flammable gas and it says, no fire, no smoking, no, none of, none of these things. And you can read the sign and you understand what it says. You know what it means. And you go, eh, big deal. Rick, what's going to happen? Exactly. You see, it's not enough to read it. It's not enough just to understand it. We have to do what it says. Because wise men still listen from a, for a word from the Lord. You notice in verse 12, it says they returned to their country by another route. Now, let me say something you might not ever have thought about. I believe this demonstrates a very important principle that once we meet Jesus, our route is altered. And we now travel a new route, one that is different from the route we used to travel. 2 Corinthians 5.17, y'all were going, oh boy, not this one again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Isn't that amazing how you can take that scripture and work it into a sermon about the wise men? You know why? Because everything in the Bible fits together. It is complete 
when you meet Jesus Christ and he truly becomes your Savior, he truly becomes the Lord of your life, you will be a different person. And the route you travel will be different than the one you traveled on before you came to him. And if that's not the case, then who are you listening to? And I will tell you that when that happens, when you meet him, when you have a personal experience, when he is the Lord of your life, you will come away from your encounter, that encounter with him, you'll come away changed. And that is the power of his grace. And that is the power of his salvation. One of the biggest problems in the American church is the fact that many people come to the altar. They pray a sinner's prayer. They profess to be saved, and they never demonstrate a true change of life. While a sinner's prayer is a good start, a sinner's prayer alone will not save you. That is why the New Testament repeatedly cautions us to be sure that our salvation experience is genuine. Yes, a sinner's prayer is a good start. It's great. But it's a repeat after me thing for the most part. And that comes from here. Salvation comes from here. I've heard people talk about, and, and it's, it's a good thing, but they would have street ministries. And they would have, you know, uh, 15, 20, 30 people together around, many who are heavily inebriated. And they'll have them repeat after them a sinner's prayer. And then they report back that we had 10 conversions The best I understand the word conversion means something's changed. Because if it's not changed, it hasn't been converted. Back in the day, many years ago, one of the hot things in the car business was conversion vans. If you told somebody you were going to sell them this $35,000 conversion van, and they open the door and they go, this is just a van. Well, no, I'm calling it a conversion van. Yeah, but nothing's changed. Nobody would buy that because it's nothing's changed. And there are far too many people who have claimed to be converted because they said a sinner's prayer, but nothing has changed. It's still the same old van it was. It's the same old life it was before they claimed to be changed. The wise men were warned to flee from Herod so that they could avoid his wrath. God, in his word, sends out a warning to all of humanity. He tells us that at some point, death is coming to all of us, and that beyond that is eternity. And we make the choice while we're living as to where we will spend that eternity. So today, God calls the lost to repentance. He calls the lost to faith. He calls sinners to come to Jesus so that their sins might be forgiven and their sins would be washed away by the blood of the Lamb. And when that happens, 
when he calls, those who are wise will seek him. If you've never been saved, please listen to my words today and come to Jesus. Jesus will save you. He will forgive your sins. After all, that's why he was born. That's why he lived. And that's why he died on a cross. If you will come to Jesus today, he will save your soul. And he's the only one that can. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by, whereby we must be saved. There's no other way. If someone says, well, there's lots of ways that always lead to the same place. No, it's not what that says. It sounds good, and it might make a lot of people happy because they can say, well, I can just believe this and I'll be saved, and as long as I believe this with all my heart, I'll be saved. Well, I don't really agree with that, but I believe this, and let's all just get together and sing Kumbaya and we'll all go to heaven. That's not the way it works. The Bible is very clear. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. A new life can be yours if you'll come to him. For a minute, in closing, think with me about the contrast we see in this text between Herod, the priest, the teachers of the law, and these wise men. The priests and the teachers of the law had in their possession the very words of God. They had the scriptures. But they didn't believe what it said enough to go and see the Messiah for themselves. Herod was clearly told that the king of the Jews had been born, that the wise men were going to worship him, and yet he refused to leave the comforts of the palace to travel a mere five miles to see the child for himself. And then when Herod actually did make a move, he tried his best to kill Jesus by killing all of the babies under a certain age entered around Bethlehem. The priests and the teachers of the law may have been called men of God, but they knew nothing of the true and living God. priests and the teachers of the law with all their learning and with all their familiarity with the word of God, they were not wise men. Instead, they were fools because they had followed, failed to follow the light that they had been given because wise men will follow the light they've been given. King Herod was the ruling king in Israel when Jesus was born. He became king of Israel through the favor of the Romans. But even with all his pomp, his power, his prestige, and his possessions, and his position, he was still not a wise man. He was a fool. Because as it was with the priests and the teachers of the law, he failed to follow the light that he had been given. So how would you describe yourselves today? Are you wise? It's an easy question to answer. You're wise if you have followed the light that you've been given. You are wise 
if you have followed the light you have been given. You are wise if you have believed the gospel. You are wise if you worship Jesus like the wise men did. You are wise if you give to Jesus the things that already belong to him. You are wise if you listen to him and heed his voice. So I'll ask today, do you need to come to him for salvation? Have you been dealing with conviction and the knowledge that maybe you're just not saved? Maybe you're not sure of your salvation. Either way, please come to Jesus today. He will save you. He will bless you. He will change your life and make you into a new creation. Well, Pastor, I was saved 57 years ago. If that's true, then that's fantastic. But a lot can happen in 57 years. With that in mind, do you need to come to God in repentance? Do you need to come to God and be restored? How you Have you allowed your love for Him to grow cold? Have you seen your devotion to him, to his house, to his work, and your devotion to worship? Have you seen those things decline? If you will come to him, no matter where you are, he will forgive you, he will restore you, and he will bless you again for his glory. If any of these describe you, then I can tell you that God is calling you to come back home, to come for salvation. And if any of these apply to you, would you come and seek him today? You say, well, I'm sure of my salvation. If that's the case, would you come and worship him? Because I will tell you that wise men still worship him today. And as we sing, Would you obey his voice and do what God is calling you to do right now? Would you come? Wise men.